Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. It's time for Justice Matters with former federal prosecutor and MSNBC analyst Glenn Kirshner. In this long-form weekend podcast, Glenn recaps the legal news of the week. First, he answers what will happen to the many Trump associates who received subpoenas from the DOJ. Here's Glenn. So friends, welcome to another weekend edition of Justice Matters. On the weekends, as you may know, we sort of pull the chair up to the kitchen table, we get comfortable, and we talk about two things. We talk about the sort of legal recap for the week, What were the biggest legal stories to break over the past week and what do they mean? Particularly, what do they mean for the prospect of accountability, for the prospect of justice? And then in the second half of our long form audio podcast on the weekend, we take on some topic having to do with reform. Reforming something in our federal government that needs to be reformed, something we see that is broken and needs to be fixed. Today, we're gonna take on how the federal government can be more forward-leaning in dealing with and trying to solve intractable problems. And I'll bet, friends, when I say the term intractable problems, you probably have one, two, three, a half a dozen intractable problems that leap to mind. Let me talk about the obvious ones, the painful ones, the deadly ones, the proliferation of assault rifles, weapons of war, that for whatever reason our federal government allow to be used over and over and over again to facilitate the mass murder of our friends and our family and our children. Talk about an intractable problem. We're also going to talk about the intractable problem of proliferation of hate speech designed to incite violence. We hear it every day. We see it on social media platforms. We hear it on these, you know, faux news networks on cable TV and over our public airwaves. Hate speech designed to, likely to, intended to incite violence violence. Another intractable problem. We're going to talk about how our federal government can be more forward-leaning in dealing with and trying to solve, or at least trying to make some inroads into these intractable problems. You know, just trying to make America better and safer for everyone. And ironically, friends, we're actually going to look back at how the Trump administration dealt with some things that they thought were intractable problems, like 
you know, immigrants coming to America to make a better life for themselves and their families. Because remember, the Trump administration made one of its first priorities when it came to power, when it began its rule, its reign of terror, it made one of its priorities banning Muslims from this country, banning a category of people, banning human beings because of who they were, where they were from, the religion they practiced. Yeah, this was a Trump administration priority, the Muslim ban. Well, you know what, friends? We are going to take a play from the Trump administration's dirty playbook on how to deal with what they perceive to be an intractable problem. And we're going to talk about running that play. But whereas the Trump administration ran that play for evil, we're going to talk about running that play for good. And that's a preview of the reform topic we're going to take on during the second half of our kitchen table chat today. So I hope you'll stick with me for that. But first, let's tackle the legal recap the biggest legal stories of the week, and what do they tell us? Are we moving toward justice, toward accountability, or you know, are we backing up, moving in the opposite direction, moving away from accountability? So friends, I think we have to start by acknowledging that the past week was something of a subpoena palooza. Mike Pence gets a subpoena, Mark Meadows gets a subpoena, Donald Trump's lawyers get a subpoena. So this was subpoena week. Let's hope that sometime soon we are talking about and frankly celebrating you know, Trump accountability week once the indictments start dropping. But we're gonna talk about the flurry of subpoenas issued by special counsel Jack Smith for some of Donald Trump's closest allies and criminal associates. And then we're gonna touch briefly on DOJ's apparent decision not to bring charges against Matt Gates. That's sort of the, the downside of this week's legal recap. We're going to touch on that. And then we're going to finish strong by talking about District Attorney Fawny Willis and where she seems to be heading in her criminal investigation of Donald Trump for his Georgia state election crimes. And we're going to take a look at the grand jury report that was just released, albeit in highly redacted fashion and form. But let me tell you, friends, there are some really important justice breadcrumbs for us to follow that were revealed in the Georgia State Grand Jury report that was just released. But let's start with subpoena palooza, because not all grand jury subpoenas are created equal. And they're certainly not all handled the same way when those subpoenas are received by characters like Mike Pence, Mark Meadows, and Trump's attorney. So let's take them one at a time. Let's start with the subpoena for Mike Pence. Mike Pence, the smallest man in America. Why do I call him the smallest man in America? Well, let's think about it. Mike Pence had information, had evidence about the crimes of Donald Trump. And we know this because Mike Pence wrote about them. He revealed them in a book, ironically titled, So Help Me God. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it. Those words will come back to haunt Mike Pence in a minute. But he revealed in his book that Donald Trump was relentlessly pressuring him to violate any number of federal laws. 
He was telling him, don't certify Joe Biden's win. Don't do it. Don't do it. I won't be your friend. You'll be despised by millions, according to Mike Pence. This is what Donald Trump was saying. And when you're urging a government official to violate federal laws, particularly federal laws like the Electoral Count Act, federal laws like the prohibition against obstructing an official proceeding like the certification of a president's election win, when you do those kind of things, you're committing crimes. I mean, Donald Trump has committed so many crimes. That's just, you know, an example of some of the crimes Donald Trump was committing. And even though Donald Trump was pressuring Mike Pence to commit those crimes, to Mike Pence's credit, that's a phrase that doesn't easily sort of roll from my lips, to Mike Pence's credit, but you got to call it the way you see it. He refused to join Donald Trump's criminal conspiracy to overturn the results of the election and to kill our democracy. At least Mike Pence has got that going for him. And when Mike Pence refused to join Donald Trump's criminal conspiracy and commit the crimes Trump was urging him to commit, Donald Trump converted Mike Pence into a victim. As Donald Trump's angry mob was attacking the Capitol, when Trump learned that Pence was not going to go along with his criminal scheme to overturn the results of the election, he tweeted out, Mike Pence was a coward. He didn't have the courage to do what needed to be done, which inspired Trump's angry mob to break into chants of what? We've all heard it, friends. Hang Mike Pence. They were looking to hurt and worse Mike Pence. Donald Trump made him from, you know, he converted Mike Pence, ironic, he converted Mike Pence from a witness to a victim. And yet Mike Pence still refuses to testify before the grand jury about the crimes of Donald Trump. He is choosing to conceal the crimes of Donald Trump, which is yet another crime called misprision of a felony, but I digress. So recall Mike Pence first refused to testify to the January 6th House Select Committee investigating the insurrection and the crimes of Donald Trump, which was un-American, unpatriotic, and inexcusable. And now he's refusing to appear before the federal grand jury investigating the insurrection and the crimes of Donald Trump. And here's what Mike Pence is claiming. I'm not going to spend much time on it because in my opinion, it's, it's pretty laughable. And Mike Pence will be ordered by every judge up and down the chain to testify before the grand jury. So here is Mike Pence's new harebrained scheme to keep from having to testify before the grand jury about the crimes of Donald Trump. He said, well, I was a member of the executive branch as vice president, that's true. And then he says, but on January 6th, I was presiding in Congress over the certification of the election's results, you know, the ceremonial opening of the envelope. So therefore, I'm also a member of the legislative branch. And I have what's called speech or debate protection against having to testify. You know, what's he going to claim next, friends, that, you know, he once served on jury duty, so he's also a member of the judiciary, the judicial branch? Maybe he's a member of all three branches of government. You know what? Yes, the courts will have to wrestle with this inane claim from Mike Pence that he was a member of Congress, therefore he has speech or debate clause 
immunity from having to testify, they're going to reject that. And I'm not going to spend any more time on it. And Mike Pence will be forced, will be compelled to testify about the crimes of Donald Trump, yet he's already exposed himself as being the smallest and most cowardly man in America because the only time Mike Pence decided he would talk about the crimes of Donald Trump is when he put them in his book and he hawked them for profit. And his book is titled, So Help Me God. Well, you know what, friends? Ironically, those are the last words Mike Pence will hear when he is placed under oath before the grand jury. Do you swear or affirm that the evidence you shall give in the proceeding now in hearing shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. And then Mike Pence will provide sharply incriminating information and evidence about and against Donald Trump. Let's turn to the next subpoena, Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's treasonous chief of staff. Remember all of the text messages and phone calls that were pouring into Mark Meadows? So many members of Congress and spouses of Supreme Court justices, at least one, Ginny Thomas, calling Mark Meadows and pressuring him to do everything he could to criminally overturn the results of a presidential election. Can't you just see Mark Meadows sitting at a White House switchboard taking these calls and text messages and saying, White House, Mark Meadows, how can I direct your treasonous call or text message? Yeah, Mark Meadows is in it up to his neck. He has now received a subpoena from special counsel Jack Smith to testify before the grand jury about Trump's crimes and very likely the crimes of others, including his own crimes, which makes this subpoena a little bit of a sticky wicket. First of all, I was a little surprised to see the reporting that Mark Meadows had been served with a grand jury subpoena. Why? Because ordinarily prosecutors don't serve the target of an investigation or the targets, plural, of a grand jury investigation with a subpoena. Why is that? Well, because the target or targets of a grand jury's investigation have a built-in Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. We know Mark Meadows has committed any number of crimes. That's clear based only on the public reporting. So usually you don't give somebody like Meadows a subpoena because he can just waltz into the grand jury and say, I plead the fifth, can I leave now? And the answer is yes, you can leave now. And then one of two or three things happen. One, if we don't think the person who just invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination actually has a valid fifth, in other words, we don't believe his truthful testimony would tend to incriminate him, then we can go before the chief judge, litigate the issue, and try to have the chief judge rule, Mark, you don't have a viable Fifth Amendment to invoke. Get in there and testify. But I think we can move past option number one because Mark Meadows does have a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Here's the other way we can handle that. When somebody like Mark Meadows pleads the fifth before the grand jury, we can grant him, we, prosecutors, I'm, I apologize for lapsing into the royal we. I was a prosecutor for 30 years and I still, you know, you shake me awake in the middle of the night and ask me what I am. I would probably say, uh, I'm a prosecutor, even though I haven't been since retiring in 2018. Um, 
what, we, what prosecutors can do is consider granting that person immunity. Because if somebody pleads the fifth, you can trump it, no pun intended, you can overcome it, you can extinguish someone's Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination by granting them immunity. Why? Because then their statements can't be used against them. They've been immunized. That is a promise. It's basically a binding contract that says, we will not prosecute you, so you must testify, including about information that could incriminate you. The only thing it doesn't protect somebody against is if they lie because immunity doesn't give somebody license to lie. It just protects them from having used against them anything they testify about, anything they divulge about what they did under that grant of immunity. So Jack Smith could consider extinguishing Mark Meadows' Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination by granting him immunity, but I don't think he should, and I don't think he will, because Mark Meadows has to be held accountable for his crime. So what I would do, and what I have done many times in my decades as a prosecutor, is I put somebody before the grand jury. If they plead the fifth, assuming I have enough evidence to indict them, I indict them for all of their crimes, and I then flip them. I develop them as cooperating witnesses. I enter into a plea agreement with cooperation that compels them to testify truthfully about the crimes of others in all future proceedings, and that is how I would handle a Mark Meadows. We will see how Mark Meadows plays it and how Jack Smith plays it now that Mark Meadows has been subpoenaed. But I have to believe at the end of the day, Mark Meadows pleads the fifth because he's got so much criminal exposure. Let's turn to the third batch of subpoenas because they involve Trump's lawyers. And, and I have to tell you, friends, perhaps people heard the information this week about Jack Smith subpoenaing the defense attorneys that represent Donald Trump, and maybe it didn't strike them as earth-shaking. I will tell you, in legal circles, it's about a 9 or a 9.5 on the legal Richter scale. Why do I say that? Because generally, we don't subpoena the criminal defense attorneys who are representing the person we're investigating, who are representing the target of the grand jury's investigation. It's really unusual. Yes, prosecutors do it from time to time, but I can promise you it's really rare, and it generally requires you know, approval from the Department of Justice way up the chain. But Jack Smith decided to do it, and we learned this week that Christina Bob one of Trump's lawyers who signed the certification saying, um, DOJ, federal government, you have all the classified documents now, and that turned out to be untrue because more classified documents were discovered after that. She was put before the grand jury, Christina Bob. We also learned that Evan Corcoran, who is another one of Donald Trump's criminal defense attorneys, was subpoenaed to the grand jury. Remember, he's the guy who according to public reporting, drafted the certification that Christina Bob signed, drafted it saying, oh, 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 we've given everything over. No more classified documents in Trump's possession, which of course, again, turned out to be untrue. So Evan Corcoran drafted it, Christina Bob signed it, so it looks like they both misled 
or provided information that was untrue. I'm not gonna say they knowingly and intentionally lied because we don't know exactly who lied. Was it just Donald Trump? Did it also include Evan Corcoran? Did it also include Christine and Bob? This is some of what I'm sure Jack Smith is working hard to unravel. And we learned that Evan Corcoran went before the grand jury previously. And it looks like, as best we can tease out what we've learned from the public reporting, Evan Corcoran invoked the attorney-client privilege, which is perfectly understandable because, friends, that's one of the main reasons we don't go around subpoenaing the defense attorney who's representing the person we're intending to indict, the target of the investigation, Donald Trump, because the attorney 99.9% of the time can and will go into the grand jury and assert an attorney-client privilege. And usually we can't get around that. That's why we wouldn't even go down that road. That is a well-established and closely guarded and protected privilege because we want attorneys and clients to be able to be candid with one another in the setting of that representation so the attorney can provide zealous representation for the client unless there is fraud going on, unless there are crimes being committed by the client and the attorney together or just by the client who is saying and doing things that are fraudulent, that are corrupt, that are criminal, and he is enlisting his attorney in that criminal scheme. Let me play that out a little bit. Donald Trump may have flat out lied to Evan Corcoran and said, I am telling you, I've given back all of the documents that I stole from the federal government when I left the White House. And based on that information, Evan Corcoran may have unwittingly or unknowingly filled out that certification, you know, parroting what Donald Trump told him. But it was a crime. It was corrupt. It was fraudulent, right? And it was in violation of a grand jury subpoena, which had been served previously on Donald Trump, saying, give everything back. So it could be that Donald Trump enlisted Evan Corcoran in the fraud and Evan Corcoran didn't know. Maybe he did know. That is what's being sorted out right now. But the impact of that kind of fraud, that kind of corruption within the attorney-client relationship gives rise to what's called the crime-fraud exception. And the crime-fraud exception says in concrete terms, in the context of what we're dealing with right now, if Donald Trump lied to Evan Corcoran and got him to fill out a false certification, thereby obstructing justice, then the attorney-client privilege, poof, evaporates. It goes away. We often refer to it as piercing the attorney-client privilege because the attorney-client privilege is not designed to hide, to secrete evidence of ongoing crime by the client, particularly with the assistance of the attorney. So that's the battle that's being waged right now in federal court in Washington, D.C., being litigated by the chief judge, Beryl Howell, albeit in secret, behind closed doors. So we don't know how it's playing out precisely, but at some point we will learn of the outcome. Coming up next, the DOJ has decided not to charge Matt Gates with any crimes. But are they done with him? This is Justice Matters. Ah. <sighs> 
The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. The DOJ is now notifying attorneys in the Matt Gates sex crimes investigation that he won't be charged with any crimes. What will happen next for Congressman Gates and others? Here's Glenn. I want to talk for a minute about Matt Gates not being charged, and then I want to finish up the legal recap portion of our kitchen table chat talking about Fawny Willis and the Georgia State Grand Jury's report. Matt Gates, I don't want to spend a lot of time on Matt Gates, but let me start with the silver lining. Okay, Matt Gates asked for a blanket pardon because he wanted to get away with all the crimes he knew he committed. That is still hanging out there, friends. And I don't think the Department of Justice is done with Matt Gates, not by a long shot. I suspect they're still looking at him for what he did on and around January 6th that prompted him to ask for a pardon because he wanted to get away with the crimes he knew he committed. And the Supreme Court back in 1915 in the Burdick case said, a pardon carries with it an imputation of guilt and accepting a pardon is some acknowledgement of guilt. I've paraphrased, but that is what the Supreme Court said, albeit more than 100 years ago. It still holds true today as far as I'm concerned. So I don't think DOJ is done with Matt Gates, not by a long shot, but we did learn that DOJ is apparently notifying the attorneys who represent witnesses in the Matt Gates sex trafficking investigation, that they're not gonna bring charges against Matt Gates for that. And that, I think, had everybody throwing up their hands and feeling like there is no justice for the ruling class criminals. There are two standards when it comes to members of Congress and other people who are rich and powerful and influential and connected, and the rest of us, we all go to prison for our crimes and Matt Gates and others get away with their crimes and I understand that feeling I understand that frustration here's all I want to say about DOJ's apparent decision not to prosecute Matt Gates you know I've tried to absorb all of the public reporting I've heard some of the chatter behind the scenes not from my friends or colleagues former colleagues at DOJ from but elsewhere that it was a really troubled investigation for one main reason. The two most important witnesses presented real challenges. First of all, Joel Greenberg, the cooperator. I'm not gonna go on about the crimes he committed or how ugly a cooperating witness he was, but the chatter that I've heard is he just kept lying and lying and lying and lying 
including lying about the crimes of others and throwing people under the bus by providing information that wasn't accurate or truthful or information that the prosecutors were able to corroborate such that they could rely on his word and you know clean up Joel Greenberg sufficiently to present him to a jury and ask a jury with a straight face to credit his testimony. And yes, when we use cooperating witnesses who are criminals who have decided to flip against their co-conspirators, they are often deeply damaged people, human beings, and it's hard to present them and urge a jury to credit their testimony, but we do it. We do it all the time as prosecutors. But it sounds like, I'm kind of reading between the lines, Joel Greenberg may have disqualified himself from being the kind of witness that prosecutors could ever put before a jury and ask the jury to credit his testimony, presumably because he kept lying so much and he couldn't be corroborated that he basically disqualified himself. And then there was also some talk about how the main victim in the case, who I believe was a 17-year-old girl at the time she was involved with Matt Gates, and Matt Gates may have been committing crimes like transporting a minor across state line for purposes of, of sex and paying money for it, etc. I'm not saying that's been proved, but that's some of what we had been hearing during the course of the investigation. There were also some rumblings that that victim didn't want to participate in the investigation or the prosecution. I don't know that for a fact, but what I can say is having dealt with lots of victims who, you know, it's understandable because they're victimized and then they just don't want to be involved in the process by which we try to hold their perpetrator accountable. It can make it very difficult, very challenging to build a case on somebody like Joel Greenberg and a victim who just desperately doesn't want to participate in the process and still believe as a prosecutor that you have proof beyond a reasonable doubt to put before a jury. Now, I don't know if this is exactly what was driving DOJ's decision-making train when they declined to bring charges against Matt Gates, but it sounds like it may have been just strictly an evidence-based decision because they felt like they couldn't get to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, I will hasten to add that in my opinion, DOJ is often too conservative, too timid about taking the really difficult cases to trial, but I can't accuse them of that here because I don't know the evidence that they had to contend with behind the scenes. Maybe we'll hear more about that in the future and maybe we won't, but let's keep our eye on the silver lining with Gates asking for a pardon to get away with the crimes he knew he committed. I think there is more in store for Matt Gates. Coming up next, after some new legal developments, it seems we're getting closer to Donald Trump being indicted for his Georgia election crimes. This is Justice Matters. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Special Purpose Grand Jury in Georgia investigating election fraud by Donald Trump and others has issued a report giving recommendations on indictments and relevant statutes. Could they be referring to Trump? Here's Glenn. Let's move on to a significantly brighter spot in the week's legal recap, and we're going to end with this story. District Attorney Fawny Willis down in Georgia. Remember that she sought to have a special grand jury impaneled to subpoena and deal with difficult witnesses, witnesses who didn't want to testify about the crimes of Donald Trump. She got the judge to order that special grand jury. She presented 75 witnesses to that grand jury, and that grand jury has now issued a report that talks about its findings, and Fonnie Willis is now back before the regular grand jury, presumably presenting that report and asking the regular grand jury to indict the people that the special grand jury has recommended be indicted. And that special grand jury's report was released by the judge this week, albeit in a highly redacted form, so we don't know as much as we'd like to know, but what we do know is hugely consequential. Let me touch on just three passages from the grand jury report that was just released, and then we're going to try to predict where things will go from here. The first and I contend most important thing we learn from the release of this redacted grand jury report is the following. The grand jury says, following is the final report of the special purpose grand jury. We set forth for the court our recommendations on indictments and relevant statutes. Why is that so important? Because there is only one conclusion we can draw from this passage in the report. They have decided that indictments should be brought, and they are talking about the relevant statutes, that is, the Georgia laws that have been violated. So what we know, what we can reasonably infer from this, is that the special grand jury said, here are the people who need to be indicted. Now, after they make that assertion in this report, page after page after page is blank. It's redacted. So there is a list on those pages of the people they believe should be indicted based on their investigation, based on the evidence and the statutes they violated, but we still have to wait a little bit longer before we get to learn who the special grand jury said should be indicted and for what crimes. We should know soon enough because Fawny Willis said previously that her charging decisions are imminent. But that is a huge breadcrumb that we can follow and it leads us in the direction of accountability. Second thing the grand jury said that is pretty consequential is the following. The grand jury heard extensive testimony 
on the subject of alleged election fraud from poll workers, investigators, technical experts, and state of Georgia employees and officials, as well as from persons still claiming that such fraud took place. We find by a unanimous vote that no widespread fraud took place in the Georgia 2020 presidential election that could result in overturning that election. And friends, by that finding, by that declaration, the Georgia special grand jury puts the lie to Donald Trump's claim, puts the lie to Donald Trump's corrupt ask of Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to just find me 11,780 votes and corruptly declare me the winner. And if you don't, you're going to be prosecuted. That is the substance of some of what Donald Trump said to Brad Raffensperger. And this grand jury finding just puts the lie to Donald Trump's claim that this was a fraudulent or stolen election. That's an important finding, an evidentiary finding, and I think we're going to hear more about that moving forward. And here is the third really important breadcrumb in the grand jury report. The report says in section 8, quote, a majority of the grand jury believes that perjury may have been committed by one or more witnesses testifying before it. The grand jury recommends that the district attorney seek appropriate indictments for such crimes where the evidence is compelling. Why is that an important breadcrumb, an important indicator? Well, friends, because the witnesses who lied before the grand jury, we don't know who they were. We know 75 witnesses testified. We know those witnesses included characters like Rudy Giuliani and Mike Flynn and Lindsey Graham and others. You think some of them may have lied to keep from incriminating Donald Trump? Well, we'll know soon enough. But the reason it's so important is because that gives DA Fawny Willis leverage, leverage over the liars. Because, you know, friends, over and over and over again, I used to tell my witnesses before I put them in the grand jury, the ones that I suspected might lie. And why do people lie in the grand jury? Well, three primary reasons in my experience. One, they're loyal to the bad guy. They're loyal to the target of the investigation, the person we intend to indict. In the context of this case, they're loyal to Donald Trump, or they're afraid of the bad guy, they're afraid of the target, they're afraid of Donald Trump, or the third reason, they're complicit in the crimes that are being investigated. They're part of Donald Trump's criminal cabal, his criminal associates, his co-conspirators. Those are the three main reasons. So when I had witnesses that I suspected might lie to the grand jury, I used to tell them the same thing, one after another after another. I said, I promise you, if you lie, I will ask the grand jury to consider indicting you for perjury. I will ask the grand jury to consider indicting you for obstructing justice by interfering in the grand jury investigation by your lies. I will ask the grand jury to indict you for accessory after the fact because your lies will have the effect of helping the perpetrator, the target, Donald Trump, get away with his crimes. And then I hoped that the witnesses would tell the truth. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. When they didn't, I had to make good on my promise. If the evidence supported it, I would indict them. What did that give me? It gave me leverage over them. 
I could indict them, flip them, develop them as cooperating witnesses, and now my case has gotten stronger against the target of the investigation. In this case, that would be Donald Trump. So that is actually an important development about which we learned when this highly redacted grand jury report was released. So we're gonna stay tuned because it sure looks like the smart money is riding on Fawnie Willis being the first prosecutor to step up and indict Donald Trump, a former president of the United States, for his crimes. Coming up next, can we encourage the federal government to address major problems that have been bogged down by continual arguments on both sides of the aisle? This is Justice Matters. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Can chronic problems in America like gun violence and hate speech be somehow resolved through government reform? Here's Glenn. Okay, friends, let's now turn our attention to the reform discussion for today. And we're going to talk about how the government can be more forward-leaning in dealing with intractable problems. As I mentioned at the beginning of our chat today, we have plenty of intractable problems, right? We have rampant gun violence. We have this unfettered access to assault rifles, to weapons of war. And for whatever reason, maybe it's, you know, dirty NRA money filling the coffers of politicians so they can get reelected. For whatever reason, the federal government writ large seems unwilling or unable to wrestle with the problem of rampant gun violence that is a result of unfettered access to assault weapons. That's an intractable problem. Another intractable problem, as I mentioned, is the proliferation of hate speech designed to incite violence. It's everywhere. Social media, it's on the you know, faux news networks on cable TV and on our public airwaves. It's everywhere, right? It saturates America and it results in more and more and more violence. Now, those are just two of our intractable problems here in America. There are lots more. And I'm not gonna focus on any one problem in particular, but I wanna focus on what the federal government can do to address these problems, to try to make some progress on the fronts of gun violence and hate speech designed to incite violence. 
So friends, I'm not gonna necessarily focus on any one intractable problem in particular, because there are so many. I just wanna use the whole notion of a chronic problem, something that we know is a problem. It's been a problem for years, for decades, for generations, like gun violence, and now like the rise of hate speech designed to incite violence. I wanna use just the notion of the intractable problem to talk about what the federal government can do to be more forward-leaning in the direction of solutions. And I have three letters that I use to label an approach that I think has some promise. And those letters are RLL. Actually, two letters, I guess, because I use L twice. RLL. What do those three letters stand for? Regulate, legislate, and litigate. So I'm going to be talking about the RLL approach to intractable problems. But let me start off by saying, is the solution I am about to propose or we're about to discuss here at the kitchen table, is it possible? Absolutely, it's possible. Is it feasible? That's another question altogether, right? Because that conjures up notions of political feasibility. The possible may not be politically feasible, but here's the thing, here's our challenge, here's our mission. We can make it politically feasible if we are determined enough to, if we care enough about protecting our friends and our family members and our children and our grandchildren and our neighbors and strangers against gun violence or if we care about protecting our society against this sort of unfettered hate speech that's likely to incite violence. We can go from the possible to the politically feasible. That is our challenge, that is our mission. So what do I mean when I say RLL, regulate, legislate, and litigate? You know, first of all, the executive branch has some pretty awesome powers when it comes to its ability to regulate. It can't create laws, it can't pass laws. That is the purview of Congress, we get that. But the president has the power of the executive order. And the federal agencies in the executive branch have the power of the regulation. Yes, I acknowledge there's only so much that they can do. They can't overstep their bounds and sort of you know, trail off into litigation. And we're gonna deal with that in a few minutes. But the executive branch has awesome powers when it comes to regulating. And that I will include in that regulation or under that regulation heading executive orders that can be signed into existence by the president. So regulate, then you have legislate. Well, that's obviously up to Congress. And I'm not gonna spend a lot of time talking about legislative remedies to these problems. Why? You know why. Look at Congress. Now with that very thin sliver of Republican control, ain't a lot that's gonna happen of any substance or consequence or benefit to the American people coming out of this Congress or this House of Representatives. But maybe there will be some common ground that can be found among Republicans and Democrats, something that can pass both the House and the Senate. So I wouldn't rule it out, but I'm not gonna spend a lot of time focusing on the first L of the RLL legislation. 
but I'm going to spend some time talking about the final L, the second L. Litigation. That's a big one, and it may not be intuitive why I have that second L, litigation, but let's try to take it on. So I am going to use the Trump administration playbook to try to highlight why the RLL approach to intractable problems in America is worth trying, is possible, and maybe we can even move it over to the feasible, politically feasible category if we work hard enough. So the Trump administration in its playbook had a play that they wanted to run. The play they wanted to run involved instituting a hateful Muslim ban. Donald Trump made no secret about that. He wanted to institute a hateful Muslim ban, a ban on Muslims coming to America. What a guy. I'm going to try to keep my blood pressure down, but I can almost promise you I will not succeed in that endeavor. So on January 27th, of 2017, just seven days after Donald Trump was sworn in, what does he do? He signs his hateful Muslim ban. He bans people from seven Muslim-majority countries from coming to America. He bans human beings for who they are, for where they come from, and for the religion they practice. And of course, his hateful Muslim ban inspires almost immediate court challenges, and not surprisingly, and I would say hearteningly, court after court and judge after judge begin to block Donald Trump's hateful Muslim ban. And as but one example, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, a three-judge panel, refuses to reinstate Donald Trump's hateful Muslim ban. And on March 7th, a couple of months later, March 7th, 2017, Donald Trump has now reworked and tweaked and reworded his hateful travel ban, and he issues a new one on March 7th, 2017, and just 10 days later, that one is blocked again by the courts. And then May of 2017, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals rules against his hateful Muslim travel ban that he has tweaked and reworked. And you know, all of these defeats in court produce headlines like, quote, appeals court declares third Muslim ban unconstitutional. And that article begins, once again, an appeals court ruled that President Trump's Muslim ban, now in its third iteration, violates the Constitution's most basic guarantee of religious freedom. Earlier today, the Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit stated that the ban's purpose has always been and remains to exclude Muslims from the United States. The ruling comes at a crucial time because the Supreme Court will issue its own decision on the ban this summer. So just think about that, friends. The courts, the judges, strike down and block hateful Muslim ban after hateful Muslim ban, and Donald Trump keeps reworking and retweaking and rewording it because, you know, he has to implement his hate of Muslims 
somehow and eventually Donald Trump finds some friends in the form of five conservative justices on the Supreme Court. And after all of the reworking and retweaking of his Muslim ban, here is the headline from the New York Times on June 26th of 2018. Trump's travel ban is upheld by Supreme Court. And that article begins, the Supreme Court upheld President Trump's ban on travel from several predominantly Muslim countries, delivering to the president on Tuesday a political victory and an endorsement of his power to control immigration at a time of political upheaval about the treatment of migrants at the Mexican border. In a 5-4 vote, the court's conservatives said that the president's power to secure the country's borders, delegated by Congress over decades of immigration lawmaking, was not undermined by Mr. Trump's history of incendiary statements about the dangers he said Muslims pose to the United States. Friends, I can't even read that without shaking a little. That's how upsetting it is that a president of the United States successfully, with the assistance of five conservative justices on the Supreme Court, successfully banned human beings from coming to America because of who they are, where they come from, the religion they practice. Thank God those days are largely behind us, but unfortunately there is the prospect of those days again ahead of us. Let's hope we don't go back to that ugly, dark, chapter in American history. But now let's turn to the notion of the RLL, regulate, legislate, and litigate against that backdrop of how the Trump administration in effect used the RLL for evil. The Trump administration decided they would use an executive order to try to ban Muslims from coming to the United States. And they issued one travel ban and it was struck down by the courts. It was blocked because it was unconstitutional. They reworked it. They went back, they licked their wounds. They learned from the lessons that the judges had delivered when they were striking it down and when they were blocking it and they retooled, they regrouped, they reworked it and they tried again and they got pushed back by the courts again by the judges. And what did they do? They stepped back, they reworked, they retooled, and they issued a third hateful Muslim ban. And eventually what happened? Well, eventually they got five conservative Supreme Court justices to side with them in their sort of hateful uh, pursuit of banning Muslims from coming to the United States. And they succeeded in accomplishing what they were trying to accomplish. But they didn't succeed with the first executive order or the second executive order. They had to keep going and reworking and rewording and learning from what the judges were saying about the infirmities, the you know constitutional overreach of the earlier attempted Muslim bans. And you know, they fine-tuned their evil and they finally got it if not right, they got it to the satisfaction of five conservative justices. What lessons should we learn? People who are not driven by hate and exclusion and xenophobia and prejudice 
and misogyny and homophobia, a, a fear and a disdain for all things other. Well, we, the people who are driven by empathy and inclusion and decency, we can also use that page from the Trump playbook. They used it for evil, friends. We can use it for good. And that is the R in the RLL, regulate. President Biden has the power of the executive order. I acknowledge there's only so much he can do, but here's what he can do, friends. He can lean forward. He can lean into these intractable problems. He's got a lot of constitutional scholars, really smart people, really deep thinkers in his cabinet, in his administration, in the Department of Justice, at his disposal. I'm sure he could bring, you know, national leaders and world leaders to bear and provide information and insight about how he can use the power of the executive order for good the way Trump used it for evil. And he can, I'm going to throw this out there as an example. People might push back. Constitutional scholars might push back. I welcome that pushback. Goodness knows I don't have all the answers and I don't always get everything right. That's for darn sure. Just ask my kids. But I'm going to use this as an example because I need a concrete example to use as we finish up this conversation about RLL, regulate, legislate, and litigate. Extended capacity magazines, high capacity magazines, extended clips. We often call them banana clips because they were kind of curved like a banana. And we encountered them, I encountered them as a violent crime prosecutor, as a homicide prosecutor. I encountered them, encountered them in our cases, in our violent crime scenes, in the streets of Washington, D.C., over and over and over and over and over again. And it turns a weapon into a weapon of mass destruction because you have this long extended clip that comes out of the magazine port of a weapon and you don't have to reload. It's just round after round after round after round fired in rapid succession, high capacity. You can kill, you can hurt, you can assault, you can maim, you can murder so many people in a matter of seconds. Extended magazines, extended clips. They are an extreme danger to the health and well-being of the American population. Let's ban them by executive order. I'm happy to have the constitutional scholars push back, but here's the thing, friends. If President Biden leans forward and tries to find constitutional ways to ban what is killing America, what is killing Americans, and he puts it in an executive order banning high-capacity magazines, there will be legal challenges filed by the NRA or by the people who take money from the NRA because they will want to continue to fill their campaign coffers. You know, the safety and well-being of the American people be damned. That's no concern of guys like, you know, Marco Rubio and the people who take the, the big dollars from the NRA. Let the legal challenges come. Friends, I would embrace those legal challenges. Because then we can go into court and we can fight the constitutionality of the attempted ban by executive order. And what's going to happen in court? We're going to make our best arguments. 
in favor of the constitutionality of trying to save the lives of Americans by banning extended clip magazines. And the judge and the courts will do one of two things. They'll either rule that it's constitutional, it might be a close call, but it's just fine, and it was done in, you know, in the interest of our national security, protecting the lives of the American people, and the courts will affirm it. They will reject a challenge to that executive order by Joe Biden banning extended clips, and then the American people win. We become a little more safe. Or the courts will do what the courts did with Donald Trump's first hateful Muslim ban. They'll strike it down. They'll block it. They'll say it's not constitutional. And then what does President Biden and his administration do? They go back, they retool, they rework, they take what they learned from the opinion of the judges and the courts with respect to how this executive order banning extended magazines was, you know, had a toe over the constitutional line. So the courts brushed them back a little bit. And then when they retool and they rework and they reissue a new and improved executive order in the name, in the you know, attempt to save the lives of the American people, there will be more court challenges. They'll go back into court and maybe that time the judges will say, oh, okay, you fixed the constitutional infirmity. This time we approve it. We reject the challenge to it. Just like Trump did. He did this for evil. He regulated, he used the power of the executive order over and over and over again for evil. Why can't we, Joe Biden, use it for good? Use the same play from the Donald Trump playbook, but use it to save lives, not to ban human beings from enjoying the fruits of the United States. I, I know this is possible, and I also know that it might not feel all that feasible, but friends, I believe it's doable. You know, I, I don't think we should decline to do it for fear that we might lose some legal challenges. That didn't deter the Trump administration. They lost lots of legal challenges, but they finally got to a place where they tweaked it enough that they got to, you know, enact their hateful ban of human beings. Why can't we do the same thing for good? So we regulate not only through executive orders, but by having every federal government agency, every executive branch agency issue regulations that are within the scope of the work that they do in that particular agency, regulations that are designed to beat back intractable problems, whether it's gun violence or hate speech, likely and designed to incite violence or any of the other intractable problems we have. And let's not let the fear of litigation stop us from trying to do good for the American people. Let's actually acknowledge that the litigation will come. Let's embrace the litigation. In that litigation, we put our best foot forward, our most constitutional argument that we can make. We put that forward and we argue that we're doing this to protect and preserve the health and well-being of the American people and by extension of our democracy, judge. And if you brush us back, understand, we'll go back, we'll lick our wounds, we'll retool, we'll take what you told us in your legal opinion, striking down what we've tried to do, and we're coming back better and more constitutional and more refined 
in the language of our executive order or our regulation, and we're gonna try again and again and again because we're here to do good by the American people, just the way Trump was here to do bad and do wrong by the American people. We regulate, we legislate, and then we litigate. We don't fear litigation, we embrace it, we welcome it, we look forward to it because either we win and then we win, and the American people win, or we lose and we retool and we reword and we try again and then we win. That, friends, is what the RLL is all about. It's possible, and if we work hard enough at it, I'm telling you, we can make it politically feasible. So what do you say? What do you say we tackle some intractable problems because, you know, justice matters. Friends, as always, thank you for joining me at the kitchen table for these long-form weekend chats, the long-form podcast of Justice Matters. As you may know, the Justice Matters audio podcast drops three times a week, twice on weekdays, once on Saturday. The weekday Justice Matters episodes are compilations of the daily legal analysis that I do. Uh, We kind of bundle it together and you can get that on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then on Saturday, we do the all original content legal recap and then we take on a challenge, a challenge involving reforming a problem in government and trying to do better, trying to move forward toward a more perfect union and a safer, more prosperous, more diverse, more empathetic, more loving America. And if you want to know where else you can find me, friends, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. I'm Glenn Kirshner 2 on those platforms. You can also come over to patreon.com if you want to become a patron. You can sort of sign up to become a member of Team Justice Proper and get a bunch of behind-the-scenes glimpses of what we do here seven days a week in our all-volunteer efforts here at Justice Matters. If you decide to come over to patreon.com, I'll send you some Team Justice and Justice Matters stickers and a personal handwritten note of thanks. You can also, of course, find my YouTube channel, Justice Matters, and we are up and running seven days a week posting a legal analysis video every day, and I welcome you to come over. And if you do come over to YouTube, please hit subscribe. It costs absolutely nothing. Nothing goes behind paywalls. I wouldn't know how to erect a paywall if, uh, if you paid me. I don't know if there was a joke in there somewhere, but as always, folks, please stay safe. Please stay tuned. And I look forward to talking with you all again soon. <laughs>